Go, I love that theme tune. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than seeing Sarah Michelle Gellar kick vampire butt on Sunnydale. Yes, it's been 20 years since Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on the original 90s football podcast. Forget the bells and whistles. All the 90s football goodness is all you need is here on Alive and Kicking. Although going back to that opening actually, Buffy the Vampire Slayer reminds me that my first ever email address and password, I can give this away now, I don't think any hackers are going to want a 20 year old email account, I don't even know if it still exists on Yahoo, but uh, it was the Stinger, no, QPR Stinger, so uh, there you go, two of my loves that people know from me about for, for football and wrestling, but my password was SMG which stood for Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, she was one of my celebrity crushes when I was a kid. Um, I think she followed Kelly Kapowski, obviously. Uh, Louise Nerding, not Redknapp, Nerding. And then, yeah, when Buffy started, it was all about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Merry moons ago now. eh? Anyway, but this is a football podcast. This is a 90s football podcast. But talking, actually, of my childhood, um, something sort of cropped up, or morally my youthhood, um, while I was watching the Liverpool-Burnley game uh, last weekend, um, I didn't realise, um, just escaped me for whatever reason, that Ian Wone is the assistant manager uh, or one of the coaches down at Turf Moor because uh, I think he's good friends with Sean Dyche. They used to grow up in the, the Forest Youth team together. Um, so I didn't know he was on the coaching staff. But to see he, at one point the camera zoomed in on him um, and, and said blah, 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 Ian Wone. Um, the story really is, and this is bizarre, and for anyone who listens to me on here, another cheap plug going on, for on the Gorilla Position podcast uh, and on TalkSport 2, the WWE podcast that I do, um, we'll know that I like to put certain names into songs. Uh, it started with footballers, although I've, I've talked about Teddy Long and Babylon on the, uh, the Gorilla Position podcast, but the first ever one, and this is going to sound so bizarre to people who, uh, I've got no association with Nottingham Forest, but I had a few drinks, I must admit. Um, I was in the Litton Tree in Dartford, for any you know, local people. Um, I don't think it's called that anymore, but yeah, that's where my local hangout was at the time when I went to college. Um, and the song at the, at the time it was a dance. I can't even remember who sang it, but it was called Pretty Green Eyes. Pretty Green Eyes. That was the song. And in my drunken sort of gaze, I decided to put the, the name Ian Wone into the next line. So it, the, the line goes, Pretty Green Eyes, Never Want to Be Alone. Um, but I thought it'd be hilarious to say, Pretty Green Eyes, the legend that is Ian Wone. Don't know why, it fit perfectly. He's not particularly a legend to me. <laughs> but go back, listen to the song, stick Ian Wine's name in it. Hilarious. And if you've got any others, this became, after that, that actually was the first one, because this became a game uh, between a lot of my friends, particularly uh, Patrick Paddy O'Sullivan, who has been on, on the podcast numerous times, friend of the show. Um, it became a game, actually, of trying to fit footballers' names um, into well-known songs. So we had uh, Brian Kilcline for time after time. So Brian Kilcline, that was a good one. Um, Graham Hyde, Paradise by Coldplay. That's a bit later that one, but that one always makes me laugh. Um, one that doesn't quite fit um, was that old dance song. Was Bade Bade Bawapa Bade. But we managed somehow to put James Beatty into this. So it's Beatty Beatty Bawapa Beatty. Yeah. It was amazing what a uh, couple of red squares does to you. But the best one, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, and I remember the exact place where I was when we um, when we came up. Well, I don't like taking credit all the time, but this was me, so I'm going to take credit for it. Um, we were in uh, Dublin visiting a few friends of mine, um, having a few drinks in a club down there. 
and Mr. Brightside came on from The Killers. Fantastic tune, you know, it's one of those songs now when you come on, what if you're at a party or a club or anything, goes down a treat, especially to that era of age group who were out drinking at the time. But I suddenly realised that Norman Whiteside's name would fit perfectly into the end of that song, and it's become kind of tradition now, whenever we're out with my friends, even my wife sings it, and so, you know, put it on your YouTube, get it on your whatever, whatever you're listening to, listening to The Killers, and I'm Norman Whiteside, not particularly 90s, more 80s, but yeah, fits in perfectly, but enough of my childhood, let's talk about 90s football, uh, today's show, uh, we're following on from um, last time out, we've been a little bit longer because we had some Technical difficulties over the last time we wanted to record this. Some internet problems. Yes, I'm looking at you, Sky. Um, which have been sorted now. I'm on Super Duper Broadband now, which is much better and much quicker. I feel like I was listening off rations, actually, not knowing what the broadband I was on before. So, yeah, this is Super Duper to me. So, yeah, we're back. Um, back up and running. This is slightly later than I wanted to do. But, yeah, we're doing our season-by-season season guide to the 1990s. So, last time out, we had... Uh, Greg Lansdowne with us, um, author of the absolutely brilliant book Stuck On You, go buy it, um, all about Panini stickers and collectibles throughout the ages, and we talked about 1990-91, Greg being an Arsenal fan, uh, was good to get his view on that title winning season where they only lost one game, and we spoke about that big brawl at Old Trafford, um, loads of different buds, all surrounded by 1991, go back and listen to that. Um, we also had on the phone Steve Chettle, um, who was um, a good guest. Yeah, good stuff from Steve. Um, we've got another great guest today as well, as we talk 91-92. So we're going eight season onwards to 91-92. Um, it's a funny season, this, when I'm doing my sort of little bit of research. that Yeah, believe it or not, I do do some research <laughs> before the show. It's not all just stuck um, in my sort of mind, in my 90s head. Um, but I, th- I think I, desc- I can describe it as a season that nothing really incident-wise. It was kind of a nice season. Obviously, the standout headline is the last season of the old format. It's the first season. Uh, sorry, the last season before the Premier League began. So old first division, second division, third division, fourth division. Um, so that's really the standout. It was kind of before everything changed. I think that's taken some up. But the actual season itself was uh, a, a good season. You know, it was a fantastic title race. Uh, between Man United and Leeds United, the eventual champions. Uh, but it wasn't really jam-packed of incidents, which in a way is sometimes good. You know, we don't want to be talking about the good and the bad and the ugly, but sometimes it's just good to talk about the good, uh, which we, do, we will do today, um, talking 91-92 um, with my two guests. Yes, two people. We've, we've tried the one-on-one. Um, we're going to try it with three people, so let's see how that goes down. Uh, a few more opinions on that one. So, yeah, so we'll get to that in just a moment as I mentioned we have a guest as well but as we're talking the 91-92 season I'm gonna you just let you divulge me for a little second because one of the biggest results in Queen's Park Rangers history um, happened this season um, it's very it's memorable very fondly at Loftus Road uh, one of our guests today is a main eye fan so I didn't want to wax lyrical too much about it on the actual show because it's not fair I'm you know I'm not going to sit there and then mock main eye fans because I can't but um yeah, I'm going to give it to you instead, sorry, <laughs> in the intro. Um, but just a quick mention, I'm not going to go crazy on it, but Dennis Bailey's hat-trick, New Year's Day 1992 at Old Trafford when Queen's Park Rangers beat May United 4-1. One of my fondest memories. I was at my nan's watching it. Um, I'm not going to claim I was there. It seems like one of those results that you talk to a QPR fan and, and everyone was there, despite the fact that we had a limited um, capacity for the away fans, but everyone had apparently with it. I wasn't. I was at my nan's um, watching it. Um, it, was on, it was on ITV's The Match, um, which we spoke to before, of course, Elton Mosby, who we had on the show a, a couple of episodes ago. 
uh, live on TV, and it was just one of those games where everything went right for QPR. You know, Bailey scored very early on, um, Andy Simpson got the other goal as well, and everything did just perfectly right for QPR that day. Um, I think David Bentley is. It took to oh, I think I can't remember what year it was. I have to double check that. But he was the he was the next person to score a hat trick at Old Trafford. So it doesn't happen very often, but it did in 1992, New Year's Day. Fantastic day for QPR fans. We also beat Leeds that season 4-1. So I will mention it slightly again on the podcast. But I just wanted to get the majority of yeah out in the intro before I rub it in Matt's face, one of our guests today. Um, before we meet our guest, then uh, we're, let's just get the housework out the way you can follow us on twitter at ak90s uh, and on facebook as well if you want to listen to any of the previous episodes they're all available on soundcloud and on itunes uh, where we've been through loads and loads of 90s goodness um there are over 40 episodes so get stuck in if this is the first time you're listening i know there's increased competition out there um some would say that i can't compete with but we're going to try um they've only just started we've got 40 episodes uh, for you to get into lots of fun lots of guests lots of different footballers on the phone so get involved on itunes or soundcloud or whatever your podcast uh, weapon of choice is and have a look at the back catalogue of all the episodes we've done and and if you do enjoy the podcast please 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 give us uh, a good rating and a review on itunes because it really really does help us keep us going um hopefully we'll be going again next season we've still got obviously this season by season guide um to get through um, we're only on sort of part two of it, so there's a few more to go yet, and we've got a few more themes. I know a few people on Twitter uh, mentioned some playoff stuff that we might do at the end of the season. Um, I've had Class of 92 sitting there waiting forever because um, I spoke to Chris Casper, so they, we will do that show at one point as well. Um, so, yeah, and just thank you for everyone who is continued support of AK90s. It's much appreciated. We have some nice um, words on Twitter, people saying they prefer us to certain other podcasts. So thank you very much for everyone for continue to listen, continue to download. It's very, very much appreciated. Um, today's show, though, 9192, uh, on the show we have John Isherwood, who is a, a DJ um, in the Yorkshire area. We've had him on the show before. I think it was on our music pod um, if I remember what we did, we did music at the yeah, it was good being a DJ, that helps. He's going to chat through us, especially Liverpool stuff, he's a Liverpool fan, so we'll talk of the 1992 FA Cup run that saw them go all the way to Wembley and beat Sunderland. And we've also got a debut on AK90s for Matthew Christ, or Chris, sorry, um, who's a Man United fan and he's a journalist, blogger, um, so he'll be talking to us uh, about Man United's close run to the title, uh, as well as the Rumbelows Cup win, yeah, good old Rumbelows. Where they were wearing that kit, yes, one of my top five kits of the 90s. So we've got all that to come, plus an excellent interview with former QPR and Man United defender of the 90s, Paul Parker. That's all to come here on Alive and Kicking. I'll see you at the other end. Enjoy the 1991-92 review here on AK90s. Joining me then for this ride are now part two, looking back at season by season in the 90s. 91-92, seems like a long time ago now. Um, firstly, a man who's well, he's all over the place in, in radio airwaves in the north, from Birmingham to Scotland, he's just told me. Um, how are you doing? John Isherwood, Liverpool fan, how's it going? Hello, mate, how are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thank you very much. So yeah, you're all over the... What is the station you're all over at the moment? Uh, well, I work on uh, a lot of the stations across the, uh, across the north, really. I'm mostly on Radio Air in Leeds, but I'm also on Hallam FM in Sheffield. I work on Viking FM as well, and I'm part of the Bower City Network, so that includes Key 103... Uh, Radio City in Liverpool, uh, Fourth One in Scotland, and uh, Radio Clyde up there as well. 
and uh, free radio in Birmingham. So yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. So if you're up that way, somewhere, somehow, you'll hear your voice somewhere, won't you? Uh, yes. Uh, from the, <laughs> uh, if anybody catches this early this week, from the 27th onwards, I'm at Hallam FM doing drive, so there you go. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. And also joining us, uh, debutant to the AK90 show, uh, Matthew Prist, writer, journalist, reviewer. Your Twitter profile, there's lots of, you're a man about many talents, Matthew, aren't you? Well, thanks for saying that, but um, I don't think I can follow John's uh, introduction there, to be honest. But uh, I'll try. I'll try my best. Uh, and a United fan, so which is, you know, people might be surprised we haven't got a Leeds fan on, but different perspective yeah. for 91-92, isn't it? I think it's probably just as well we haven't, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> no, I mean, being a United fan this season, as much as it, as painful as it is to to look back, I still think it was a fascinating season. It's one of those seasons that still sticks in the in the memory, probably for all the wrong reasons, but... Uh, as I'm sure we'll discuss exactly. later on. Sometimes that makes for a better show, unfortunately, for you. I, I agree, yeah. And I'll try not to mention Old Trafford, New Year's Day, too many times. Well, well, I think it's quite key in this season, to be honest. I mean, I don't think you can talk about this season without mentioning that famous game. Oh, it, well, Matthew, if you want to mention it, we will mention it. That's fine by me. <laughs> we'll get on to that. Oh. Uh, before we get on to 91, 92 then, um, we'll do the 90s football CVs, as we always do. John, it's your second time on, so it's games. Uh, your favourite Liverpool game of the day? Is this the easiest question for a Liverpool fan in the 90s? Yeah, it's got to be the uh, the classic 4-3, hasn't it? It, has, it can't got be. to be. <laughs> what a game that was. It was ridiculous. I mean, it, it, it had everything, didn't it? It had all the goals. It had the emotion. It had another great bit of commentary as well. And you just you just couldn't believe what you were seeing. In fact, I watched it again the other day because there was some repeat on a random channel. And watching all the highlights from it again, it's it, it just absolute madness that games like that happen and then it happened again yeah people forget that second one don't they in terms yeah. of I don't know why it wasn't as I don't think it's quite as late or critical in the title race as the first one but it's another great game it was a really good game but that first one it, like I say it had everything and Keegan's head dropping the slump and, yeah yeah Collymore closing in and all yeah. that kind of well, thing well we, did, you know, we did a show very early on last season on matches of the decade and of course that was very prominent and the show was called Collymore closing in go back <laughs> have a listen to that one. And your favourite game, outside of Anfield, as I always say, what would be your, your favourite game of the 90s? Yeah, this is a bit of a weird one, really, because it's a World Cup game. And it's, um, it's the one where Michael Owen kind of announced himself onto oh. the world stage, if you will. And I was in the pub with my mates, and I remember this so well. I was at uh, college at the time, and I was just screaming for him, just out of complete bias to bring Michael Owen on. And I was like, get him on, get him on, get him on. And they, he did that. That. He, did that, <laughs> just, he did that incredible, incredible goal and just that run and the fact that nobody could even get anywhere close to him. And oh, it, was, it was unbelievable. And the atmosphere in the pub as well just went absolutely crazy. It was a real feel-good kind of thing at the time. But, yeah, obviously things didn't go, didn't go well for England as uh, they, they've not done in any you know, international tournament, really. No. It was a great game. For, like, if you weren't English or Argentinian, well, if you're great for Argentinian, but if it yeah. was a neutral, it was a game that had literally I like it's a cliche but had everything didn't it oh it did it really did and it was just incredible to watch it all and it was great to see Michael Owen who'd had a lot of pressure put on him I remember talking about him with my friends saying oh this guy's meant to be the next Robbie Fowler coming up through the the uh, youth ranks and the reserve side at, at Liverpool and then to burst onto the scene as he did was amazing it was kind of nice to see his trajectory after that and, and the way his career went and obviously then he went to United didn't he and then we forgot about him so it, uh. <laughs> I, think, I think he was long forgotten before he went to United I was, yeah he was long forgotten before that I think, uh, the, the part where he went I think was when he went to latch onto that ball from Matt Manaman and he did his hamstring 
for the first. I think it was the first time he did it. Against and Leeds, that was when he it? lost that pace. Yeah, it was. Yeah, 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 and he lost that pace after that. He wasn't the same player after that injury. No, I was a big Michael Owen fan myself, but yeah, great goal, great moment. Um, Matthew, then, yeah, players. So it's the uh, the first one for you. Your favourite Man United yeah. player of the nineties. Well, this is a tricky one because obviously you mentioned the nineties and United to a lot of people, and they think. You know, obviously, of people like Cantona and, and Keane and <clears throat> what have you, which obviously they have every right to do. But for me, having watched United from the early 80s onwards, I mean, there's still players there like uh, Brian McClare, Mark Hughes. Yeah. Obviously, <clears throat> they were there at the end of the 80s, but still very, very prominent in, in the early 90s too. And you have, and people like Dennis Irwin and uh, Paul Parker, huge, huge players in, in a time when United were just starting to become this machine that they they went on to become later on in the decade but the one I would pick out as my favorite player and the player I think made the biggest difference to the team in the in the 1990s was Peter Schmeichel I think yeah. when United signed him I think he just he just changed the outlook of the team he brought with him a, a fantastic work ethic he was obviously brilliant in the between the sticks but he was also a great a great leader and I think as soon as he came into that side he just it just clicked, and uh, it's so influential. And you know, we could we could spend a whole podcast really talking about some of his saves and some of the things he he'd done when he was uh, he was at United. So I would. It was a tough decision, one I lost a lot of sleep over. Believe me, <laughs> but uh, I would personally go for Peter Schmeichel. Yeah, and, and he's, he's one of those. He's kind of like Neuer in the in the more modern era, isn't he? he changed the game, didn't he, for goalies? Yeah, he, he did. did. He did. I mean, I think. I mean, it's funny because when he signed for United, even. Even back then, there was almost a suspicion about foreign goalkeepers. You know, they were seen as a bit of a, you know, a liability. And I remember when there was talk of him joining United, everyone was sort of saying, "Oh, who is this guy? You know, oh, can we trust a, a foreign goalkeeper? You know, he might be a bit, a bit shaky, a bit, you know, dodgy at crosses and that kind of thing." And I mean, he was a little bit shaky when he first came in. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, what he went on to do was phenomenal. And like you say, not just at United, I think he's just changed the way people think about a goalkeeper in a, in a team. It almost used to be the, the last t- uh, name on the team sheet, but now it's very much the first, mm. and I think that's very much down to him, to be honest. Yeah, very much so. And outside of Old Trafford, then, your, your favourite player of the 90s? Um, favourite or best? I don't know how you'd, we'd go on this one, but I mean, I'd, I'd probably have to say Alan Shearer. Um, yeah. I know there's a lot said about what could have happened if he'd signed for United and what have you, and ifs and buts and maybes, and maybe he would disagree with that. I don't know, but I mean, from a... Again, from a United point of view, if he had signed for United, I think it's frightening to think what they uh, what they could have gone on to do. But in fairness to Shearer, he obviously did fantastically well at Blackburn. And then even when he went to Newcastle, even though he wasn't always playing in the best team, he was still banging in the goal. So, I mean, he's just a phenomenal player. If you think of the 90s, you, you've got to, you, you can't really look past Shearer, I don't think. No, easily, yeah. Some, some of my dad never rated. Always found that hilarious. Like really? My dad, yeah, my dad always oh. said, don't rate that Shearer. <laughs> I'd love to know what is out. You'd have to get him on the show. And yeah, I know. Can, well, uh, no, I really wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's set the scene. 91-92. So where we finished off uh, on the last show, Arsenal were champions. So they were favourites uh, going into this uh, season as well. Didn't add really majorly to the squad um, going into the season. They opened their campaign against QPR. Yep, there's your first mention for your scorecards. Uh, 1-1 draw there. And it was Dennis Bailey, who we will get onto in just a bit. Um, before we talk about the title race in general, because I'm, I'm, we're not going to do this chronologically, because we would be here. This is why the Premier League years and, and whatnot are so long. We'll just we do an overview of what happened. Let's talk about this Leeds team. Um, John, you're someone who's worked in the area a lot. Yeah. This Leeds team, 
1991-92, how is it still viewed in that area? Because it's such a, it was a very much a team of, of clogs, wasn't it? You had the, the Workham Light in midfield, you had the youngsters and Gary Speed and David Batty coming through, the veterans like Lee Chapman and Gordon Strachan, and then the, sort of the added flair with Cantona at the end. How, how's the team viewed in the area still? They're still remembered with such fondness, they really are. And having worked with Leeds United and been inside the ground and been with some of the ex-players who still, you know, refer very fondly to that team, they really, really do believe that that was one of the, you know, the last great Leeds teams. Obviously, the one that, you know, with the kids, the only kids that went on and did so well for themselves. But this team was was something that they really do revere now, and I think. They've been so up and down of Leeds United. They've been all over the place that they're really trying to get that identity back again. And like you said, having that mix of youth and experience, it was it was crazy. I said to uh, a friend of mine actually, that Leeds United mad on uh, on Twitter. He's one of the, the sort of biggest Leeds fans you're ever going to find. He knows the club inside out. And I asked him what his memories were about this season as well. Somebody who went to all the games. Uh, and he said that, you know, the last champions, as you say, before Sky invented football, you know, the last Englishman, Sergeant Wilco, winning that title. Yeah, he said these kind of great memories that every Leeds fan are going to have and, you know, maybe they're not going to be performed again. But, you know, it was, it was such a big season for them. It really, really was. They do still love it there. They do still talk about it a lot. And rightfully so as well. I mean, before we talk about the, the title race, Matthew, so you, what, what did that Leeds team have that maybe United didn't have? In the end, because they spent a bit of money in the summer leagues. They bought in Tony Dorigo, yeah. Steve Hodge, mm. Rod, uh, Rod Wallace, which I think came to about over four million. So in those days, that's a lot of money added to that squad. What do you think they had overall of the season that United didn't? Well, I mean, before we briefly before we talk about the season, you've got to remember that two seasons, three seasons before this one, Leeds were bottom of the second division. Yeah, of course, um, got promoted. Then yeah. got, got promoted. Uh, finished. Uh, what was it? Nineteen ninety one season. I think they finished fourth. And then, obviously, went on to contest and win the title this season. So, it's an incredible story, really. I mean, we talk about Leicester in recent, you know, last season. But, I mean, to go from the second division promotion to finish fourth and then to win the league within four seasons is a really incredible achievement and probably one that they don't don't get a lot of credit for. And I think going into this season, it, what Leeds had that United didn't have, and ultimately that was shown at the end of the season, was that team spirit. I mean, they weren't the household names that United were, um, but they'd obviously marched up through the league together, they'd played together, and they had that determination that was proven in the lower divisions. And, and, and even though they made those key signings, they still had a lot of that side that came up from the second division. So I think ultimately that, that proved to be you know, the, the, enough for them, especially during the running. I mean, I know we'll get onto it later, but during the running, that Leeds team really seemed to pull together and get the results that United couldn't, and that was that was key. So there's, there's a lot to be said, isn't there, for that kind of team spirit? Because we've yeah. seen it with Leicester in the previous season in the Premier League, and how these players who've been together for so long and worked together day in day out and know each other and have known each other for years, they can yeah. do that with the motivation. You don't have to have. Those big names and Leeds yeah. didn't, didn't drop a home game that season whatsoever. Yeah, no, no, a, absolutely. Yeah. It was a great season for Leeds and uh, Howard Wilkinson as well. I mean, he's someone mm. I think doesn't get enough credit now because of what happened post Leeds and how his managerial career. But the last Englishman to win the league, which is crazy when you think about how long ago that is now. Um, obviously, knowing oh, yeah. he has won the Premier League. So that's a big, big thing for him. He brought in Cantona as well. I mean, I want to ask you guys about Cantona because a lot is made about, obviously, his move to Old Trafford the season after. Um, but he's moved to Leeds at a time, 
I wouldn't say it was game-changing because he only scored three league goals for Leeds in the closing stages, but he's one of those signings that just got them over the line. He had a trial at Sheffield Wednesday, famously. There's go on YouTube, you'll find the footage of him playing. I think it's an indoor game. Some, I was yeah, a trial yeah. there and it didn't quite work out, but Howard Wilkinson brought an indie on and he just added that final little piece to the jigsaw, a bit of flair to the club, um, a really easy, quick partnership with Lee Chapman as well. Yeah, he was, he was a spark, wasn't he? He was something different yeah, that came into that team and... The, he, he was that unknown quantity, as you said, and when you find a player like that, you're going to think something special is going to happen. And I think if Leeds had held on to him, can you imagine what they could have done if they'd held on to him? It's, it's one of those sliding doors moments, isn't it? If it would have yeah. happened. But one of the um, big tra- we'll talk about that transfer on the next show. But yeah, for sure, imagine if Leeds... Because I remember him in the Charity Shield, again, we'll talk about the next next show, but he's got a hat-trick, didn't he, in the, uh, the yeah. Charity Shield. Yeah. Um, Do you remember what um, the Sheffield Star called him? No, go on. Eric Lebrat. <laughs> well, he had that reputation, didn't he? I mean, that's why a lot of the managers in France didn't want to touch him. He'd, he'd argued with referees. He got banned in France. Um, yeah. So it, it was very much so. It didn't seem like a Howard Wilkinson signing at the time, but it did kind of get them over the line in terms of, of the league. But that's, that's talk about the title race. Because Man United, I mean, they started the season kind of in blitzed form. They, they went 13 games mm. unbeaten before a defeat. Uh, to Sheffield Wednesday and they led the way to, to about March wasn't it Matthew? So Yes yeah, The question I'll, is what I went remember, wrong? I remember it very well I mean like you say they started off like, like a train I remember the, the opening day I was there at Old Trafford they had uh, Notts County at home Kinchelskis was he'd signed at the end of last season Schmeichel making his home debut and United just, just started like an absolute train and going back to what we were saying about Schmeichel he I don't think he's led in a goal until about the fifth game of the season at home to Leeds, actually. I think United, I think they won 2 0, 1 0, 0 0, 1 0. So they hadn't led in a goal for about six hours. And I think that, that's what made a lot of United fans start to think, you know, we could, could be onto something here. Because, you know, before that, United had been winning games, but letting in goals and getting draws and dropping points. So at the beginning of that season, really. It, it sort of set a foundation for what a lot of United fans thought was going to be a season uh, of success. I mean, obviously United on the on the back of the year before having won the Cupners Cup and the year before that having won the FA Cup. So there was a bit of momentum going there. So obviously it was no real surprise going into this season that United were going to do well. But I don't think people expected them to do as well as they obviously did. And we'll say the, the first half of the season, certainly, I mean, right up until Christmas. It really was almost a almost a one horse race, really. Let's and, get Christmas uh, and out of the way. Then you say it. We well, already, yeah, so it was a sort of pivotal <laughs> mo- mo- moment in the title race, January first, nineteen ninety two, Old Trafford. Yep. Um, and that, it was live on telly, as I said in the intro. Um, it was on the match. It was, yeah. Um, Elton Wellsby, shout out to friend of the show, Elton Wellsby. Um, I watched it at my nan's. Um, I remember that sitting there on my sofa. Can't believe that QPR were on the telly because it didn't happen very often no. <laughs> in those days. Uh, Out tribe expecting to get a point, and what happened? I mean, it goes down in QPR folklore. Of course, it's one of the, the big results we had, especially in that era. Although we went on to beat Leeds by the same result as well that season, four-one. Um, yes. But it, it was just one of those bizarre games where everything went right for one team, being QPR, and United couldn't handle Dennis Bailey of all people, Stinson, Wegley. It just it all went wrong for United that night, didn't it? It did, it did, and, and, and there was no sign of it coming. I mean, again, going up to that, I was looking back at some of the um, results uh, the other day. I mean, all through December, United were in incredible form. They'd won away at Chelsea. They'd beaten Oldham 6-3 on Boxing Day. Um, yeah, they were flying. I think that the problem was United had a bit of a, 
they played Leeds a couple of days before that in December and drawn that game, which had almost given Leeds a bit of hope. And I think it put the frighteners on United uh, that Leeds might actually be able to, to catch them. So I think there was a bit of, a bit of momentum was lost there. And, uh, but to think it would all collapse against QPR, no disrespect, no, but that was the one, that was the one fixture... <laughs> One fixer that you wouldn't think, I mean, there were obviously some tricky games around Christmas. I mean, United ended up playing Leeds three times. They played, had them in the league in uh, the end of December. Then we had Leeds in the third round of the FA Cup and the semi-final of the, uh, or the quarter-final of the Rumblows Cup. So games like that you could see being a problem, but not QPR at home. And uh, if you remember that game, it was QPR that, that went off like a, like a steam train and absolutely flattened United. Um, thanks to Mr Bailey. Yeah, remember it well. But yeah, it was, as you say, it turned the title race. John, obviously a Liverpool fan, you have a certain respect for Man United, of course. What what did you yeah. make of, of that Man United team, especially up to that point? Do you remember them being probably the ones to beat? Yeah, they were definitely the ones to beat. And you start looking at the players that they had, and, and as you touched on before, it was like the foundation of that team that was going to dominate for such a long time. And you look at the players that were in that team and uh, and the ones that were coming through, the Ryan Giggses that, was, uh, that were coming through and uh, Gary Pallister, Steve Bruce, Paul Parker was still a big part of that team. Peter Schmeichel, as you mentioned before, has got to be one of the greatest keepers in Premier League history. Probably I don't think there's still a... I still think he's yeah, the best. He is. He's without a doubt absolutely fantastic. And, you know, as, as you were saying before, you know, everything he did after... He left Manchester United was even better as well, but that that team was. You could kind of tell something special was happening, and you know, as a Liverpool fan, you didn't want it to because it's United, but something was happening, and and it was a bit of a worry. But yeah, was was that Fergie's fiftieth birthday that one at QPR? Yeah, it was his yeah, birthday. Birthday on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Yeah, and again, those, just those players, like you said, you yeah, you look at Lee Sharp. Even you know, he came off the bench in that FA Cup final. I think my friend was absolutely obsessed with him. Did the Sharpie shuffle outside his house. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I got on the telly she did and uh, yeah it, it was there was such a great side and it was a worry because Sunis had gone and ripped up what was what was happening at Liverpool and tried to replace it with something else and, and it's that rebuilding process isn't it and Fergie seems to be yeah. a step ahead I, I think John if, if you don't mind me saying what United had there was a good side but I think they lacked a bit of leadership and I think in that QPR game and then the subsequent games that we're obviously going to discuss that's where it, it hit them. They really lacked the players that they needed. That ultimately United signed people like Keane and uh, yeah, and, and yeah, Stam, Those kind of players. I think United were just a little bit wet behind the ears with that, with the kind of experience that they were going to have uh, during this title running. And as you said, with players like Schmeichel, who kind of changed it a little bit, Matthew. You know what I mean? When he kind of he had that attitude as well, didn't he? Where he would shout and scream at his oh, defense. Unbelievable! Big red yeah. nose. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why he became the captain. And, and a lot of people criticised him at the time for that, you know, thinking he was a bit of a bully. But I mean, you can see how ultimately over the next four or five seasons, how it became key. You know, it was him calling the shots, and the defence did exactly what he told them to do. And, and that's why United went on to to the success they ultimately did. But this season that we're talking about here, I think they, that just wasn't quite there. I think there was a bit of uh, inexperience there. Uh, although United had won a couple of trophies leading up to this, but in terms of a a title running, they just they just weren't weren't up to it. Evidently, yeah. You say where it went wrong then. For me, looking back at the season, it was kind of two games and then the eventual collapse at Anfield. But there was the Forest win at Old Trafford, 
um, in yeah, April. And Easter then, Monday, yeah, I was there. I remember it well. And then the painful. The West Ham defeat. West Ham the following Wednesday. Which Tuesday, all, Wednesday. Already relegated West Ham. I mean, West Ham. Kenny Brown scored a goal that uh, Gary Palace had cleared the ball and it went straight to Kenny Brown, who I think tried to trap it and it went in off his uh, off his instep. But it, to be honest, I think it had gone by then. I mean, from what I remember of that, even the January, the February of that season, I remember going to Loftus Road in March and drawing nil-nil with QPR and United battering QPR or knocking on the door certainly and you could just tell how it was they just they drew so many games in that running we had City at home drew that Wimbledon at home drew that we had QPR away drew that Luton Easter Monday drew 1-1 I mean it was just United were getting in positions where they won it up and then throwing it away and drawing and it ultimately cost them and and the Forest and the West Ham games were just you know, it was almost the writing on the wall by then. Yeah, and that, and then the key game, it came, Leeds had beaten Sheffield United, um, yeah. Gale, Gale with one of the best own goals that you'll ever, go back on YouTube yeah. and look for Sheffield United's Gale. There were two, there were two own goals mm. that day, I think. The, the Mar- was... I think Marcus Gale, yeah, is one of the specialist own, like, own goals, I think he had yeah. need it, then headed it, yeah. it was absolutely great uh, own goal, one of the classics that was, that three I can... win. That gave them four points. Then you went to Anfield, and then Anfield on straight afterwards, yeah, on the match, yeah. I, I mean, watching that Leeds, the Sheffield United game that was on, it was great back then because, like you say, football wasn't like it is now in terms of games being televised. But to have the two games on, one before the other, <coughs> was a real big, big deal. But watching what happened at uh, Bramall Lane that day, you just knew, you just knew Leeds were going were to win the league. I mean, it was it was hard enough having to go to Anfield and win anyway, but having seen what had happened there, you just thought, well. Name, name on the trophy uh, stuff there. And John, did did you enjoy that moment? And was that sort of poetic justice for your season? It's always good to beat United out there, though, isn't it? It doesn't matter what year it is; it doesn't matter at all. But yeah, it was because you know we we, we needed a result like that. I think even though you know it wasn't going to be a good season for us with uh, with the league, we needed that, and it was nice to. It was nice to beat United. I mean, it always is. You don't, you don't have to play it down, Joe. I mean, from what I remember <laughs> that day, Liverpool celebrated like, <laughs> like they'd won the league. And I don't blame them. We've done it for years in the in the 80s and early 90s when United, you know, were obviously in Liverpool's shadow. Any anything to get one over on Liverpool yeah. was a big deal. But it was it was funny that it, the boot was actually on on the other foot that on that one occasion. I spoke to a lad that was there. He writes for United we stand fanzine and I was talking to him about how awful that day was because it was truly awful awful to see the the cops celebrate like that and he, he said to me um, he said no I didn't feel like that he said seeing what happened and seeing the way Liverpool were celebrating that they'd stopped United winning the league he said in my heart I knew this team were going to win things and they were going to win things soon <laughs> how much of that I believe I don't yeah. know because that day I remember thinking that's it they're never going to win the league and this is it but in hindsight I can see he had a point I mean you could see that you know, United were going places, and maybe Liverpool were on on a d- downward turn, possibly. But it didn't feel like that at the time. I can tell you that. Well, we'll talk more Liverpool in, in the second half of the show. We'll talk about the FA Cup. But the one bright moment for Man United that season, of course, was as you mentioned, the Rumbelows Cup. Still bloody love yes. Rumbelows. I mean, well, whatever happened yeah. to Rumbelows? It's such a weird. I don't word. know. I think I think my mum and dad were still paying off a television they were renting with them up until about two years ago. So. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where that money was going because I'm sure Rumbelow's gone. I mean, where did it even come from? Very strange. But the Rumbelow's Cup um, <laughs> final, which was against Nottingham Forest, um, in the yeah. cup, in the run-up to it, United have beaten Cambridge, Portsmouth, Oldham, Leeds, as you mentioned, in that sort of period where you yeah. played, you knocked them out of both cups before beating Middlesbrough in the semi-final over two legs. Um, it wasn't the greatest game. I remember Stuart Pearce uh, was out for Forest, so that also made them a little bit weaker. But it was another trophy, as you said, 
and more importantly, yeah. wearing the greatest away kit you've ever had. The, yeah, the maple leaf, the maple leaf blue kit that had come in uh, the season before, the nineteen ninety one season, which you know I, I remember some epic games wearing that kit. Yep, I had it myself. I still got it actually. Child size, I wouldn't <laughs> be able to fit into it now, but uh, no, I still got it. But obviously, that was for United's first ever first League Cup, Cup win as yeah. well. So, and I remember uh, I was there that day, and I remember people thinking that you know this was the start of you know win the League Cup and then go on to greater glory. But as it turned out, that League Cup success actually came right in the middle of United's sort of terrible period of, of getting draws and and losing to teams that they shouldn't they shouldn't really lose, including Forest. I think United had just got beaten to, by Forrest a couple of weeks before that and then obviously beat them in the cup final. I remember afterwards Ferguson saying, you know, I'd quite happily swap the, the cup for uh, yeah. for the three points. It, it, it's just the way that running was going then, you know. Was, they, just, they just needed to get a couple of wins and they couldn't. But but a great day. I mean, I, at the time, it was one of one of, uh, one of of my best memories. Courtesy of Mr. Wells being the match, I managed to get some free complimentary yeah, VIP tickets. you put tickets that on Twitter, and, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I was a big fan of the match. I don't know if you remember at the time how, how key it was. It was quite, it was really revolutionary. I mean, t- TV in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, football games, they just came on and they were on and then there was no build-up and then they just finished. And then the match came along at the end of the decade and revolutionised everything. I mean, you'd have like a pre-match, you'd have, it was like a magazine show yeah. and then they would show you the goals from the day before at half-time and they'd have interviews in the changing rooms and everything and... I don't know if you remember, they used to publish the match programme. Yeah, I've got one before the game. A Southampton and, they would, and Liverpool one, yep. for some reason, I've got. And they would run a magazine with it, and it was great. And back then, I was a big letter writer. I, I probably still am, but I used to love, you know, if I liked something or saw something, I used to write to people. And uh, partly because I just used to love getting headed notepaper back. I was excited if I mm. got some headed notepaper paper back. And I, I just wrote to the uh, magazine and said, I love the show and I love the magazine and everything. And then. About a week later, I got a letter back saying, you know, how how much they appreciated my letter and how the, I'd taken the time to to write to them and said, oh, phone the office. We've got, you know, we might be able to offer you a, a gift. So I thought I'd get a signed picture of Elton Wellesby or Brian Moore or something. And they said, oh, um, how would you fancy two VIP tickets for the League Cup final in a couple of weeks? And I thought, well, it was the best 20 pence I'd ever spent on a, on a postage stamp, I think. And... Uh, it was a great day, yeah. Simpler times yeah. in media, wasn't it? Definitely. Yeah, it was great. And I, I've still got that. I think, obviously, you saw the, the letters the other day, but it, it was great. And I turned up and we had a lunch and a champagne reception and Duncan McKenzie, and it was just a fantastic day. So, uh, great. 25 years ago, this, this well, next month. I mean, yeah, it was amazing, wasn't it? John, what are your memories? Do you yeah. remember the Rumble Cup final? I just about remember it, I think. Yeah, it was one of these ones that I, I watched with, uh, with my dad. And uh, I certainly remember Rumbleos. I think my local one now has turned into a game. Uh, but I'm pretty sure we got our fridge from there or something like that. And uh, yeah, look at this. This game was one of those ones which obviously it, yeah, it had the worst kit in the world. That kit was horrendous. As you were just talking about. How dare oh, you, John? I feel like ending the call right now. <laughs> it still gives me headache. <laughs> it's, I mean, I don't know if it's, it's that worse than the one where you couldn't see the players in. The grey one. Yeah, well, exactly. I, think, I love that. I love that blue kit for yeah, several I'm, reasons. It was I'm a, with Matthew on this one. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great time. I remember going to Highbury the year before and winning six two. Was yeah, it in the league Lee cup? Sharp United, trick, yeah. yeah, United seemed to wear it in games. Well, they wore it at Anfield that famous yeah. day when we got beat two 0 as well. So it wasn't all good. But I, I just thought it was such a different kit. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And 
Yeah. It was one of those ones that I remember a lot of my friends having. Because a lot of my friends supported United. Where I lived, there was uh, like a little pocket of Liverpool fans. And then everyone else seemed to support Man United. And everybody had that kit. And uh, there was a lot of people that had uh, random, quite random players on the back of it. Ken Chelskis was very popular. Mm. He'd come in that yeah. season, didn't he? I think, yeah. Well. Yeah, he came in at the end of that season, yeah. And he oh, was, sorry, uh, no, he'd come in at the end of the season before, yeah. So he was there that season, yeah. He was super popular on that kit without a shadow of a day. Now, that's, that's a lot of letters. That, oh, no, he wouldn't have his name, wouldn't he, at that point? We had no squad numbers. Cause I'd say that's a lot of letters on, on the back of your shirt. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the future seasons, everybody got the Kanchelski shirt. And look at, you, know, you look at the offer, you look at Forrest. And there's two players who, of course, he went on to do very, very well, isn't it? Was that the season that maybe Fergie looked at Roy Keane and went... Yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keane would have been the Keane would have only been about wasn't he about nineteen twenty then but he was still a a real engine in that a real leader in that team even then wasn't he even though he was only I'm sure he was only about nineteen twenty yeah yeah sure. he was but yeah. for were a great side then really I mean they yeah. always seem to they always seem to be up there you know they're in cup semi finals league cup finals I mean they always seem, they always seem to beat United in key league games I seem to remember so including that one on on uh, Easter Monday that season. John, your Liverpool kit was quite nice. That the, the, that was the first time we saw the green one, though. That was a that was the green one, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, that, I, I'm not a, I'm not a massive fan of the away kits because some of them are pretty horrendous, and that one wasn't the best. I don't mind a bit that, of that, that was the season with the famous uh, Adidas template yeah. design, wasn't it? That's when it came yeah. in, and because the Euros that year, everyone seems to have that that kit. So uh, I, mem- I remember seeing that Liverpool kit the, the summer before in Match Magazine, and thinking, what? What on earth that? But, yeah, uh, it was a very uh, unique shade of green, not the unique accru colour they had. Racing, racing green, it was described as at the time, I think. Yeah. And the, the go faster stripes that were on the side as yeah. well, yeah, on the shoulder, yeah. they were pretty special. Mm. I don't know where they really came from, but they were a little bit random. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, there was a, a slightly darker shade of green, I think, later on, about sort of 10 years later or something like that, for an away kit. But yeah, that was the, the uh, <laughs> that was a special. I had a candy one. I was the only kid in my school with a candy uh, candy shirt. Whatever happened to Candy? Yeah, it's another one. Whatever did happen to Candy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we'll talk more about Liverpool in just a moment. But first, keeping with the theme of the Rumbleys Cup final, we got our guest on the line waiting for us. He played in that final for Manchester United. He's also an ex QPR. Well, I'd go to say the legend. He was a very much big part of the early nineties of QPR. He's former England right back, played in Italia ninety for England. Paul Parker speaking to me earlier today on Alive and Kicking. Paul Parker, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, no problem at all. Uh, we're talking 91-92 on the today, today's show, but we'll take you back a little bit before that because we can't talk to you without talking about the Italia 90 and the magic of that World Cup. What are your fondest memories of playing for England in what was one of the, the best tournaments of the decade? Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to say all of it more than anything because it, um, it, become, it, was, a, it was a shock more than anything because I just went out there really as I wore number 12 um, throughout that tournament, my squad number, I went there believing I was going to be number 12. I was not going to get off the side or anything. I was just going to be watching it from the bench more than anything because leading up to that tournament, I'd only had um, 15 minutes of com- um, competitive football and that was in the um, last 15 minutes of the home win against Albania. So it was a big, big shock for you to, to start and stuff. Were you aware of how big it was being viewed at home? Because you had the big homecoming party as well. Did you realise what effect the tournament had on the fans back home and how it was the beginning of the change in football? No. 
No, none of us had a clue. There was players who were mostly speaking to people back at home, and people might have been dropping hints, or but no one, no one actually had a clue because obviously, as everyone knows, football wasn't in a good state at that time. Um, so no, not not at all. It was, it was all very much shocked. You know, as far as I was concerned, when we landed at Luton Airport, I assumed that the Beatles had got back together and <laughs> we were watching Luton Airport. Because that's how, that's how mad it was. It was absolutely crazy. I must have had about four or five bags, you know, with me, coming back with extra tracksuits and T-shirts and shirts that are worn, shirts that are swapped. And I was, it was a struggle to keep them all because people were just trying to grab everything off of you, to be honest. And it, and it became a little bit manic. I remember getting bundled into the back of a police van, and that was off the runway. So it did get a bit crazy. But at the same time, such an amazing experience. What, what for you, if you could pick a game, what was what was the key game for you in that World Cup that you, you look back on most? Um, I'd have to say it was the game against Cameroon, really, mm. where where we um, where we come back as heroes, but we could have come back as um, zeros, to be perfectly honest, because at one point it, it could have ended up very embarrassing in the fact that we was 2-1 um, down and... In the end of the day, they could have gone 3-1, but I think ignorance and naivety stopped them going 3-1 up, really, when there was virtually a one-against-one against Pete Shelton. But we managed to get through it with two very blatant penalties. I mean, there was, you know, they were, they were like, there was like assault on Gary. Mm, on I remember, yeah. yeah. It was awful challenges. There was no doubt about them at all. Um, but, you know, in the end of the day, we, we got through that game when it was deemed, it was deemed by a member of the party, the coaching party, it was like um, deemed a bye. You know, we was going to be in a semi-final. So that that was the one where expectation was that we were going to win that game. We was on our way to a semi-final. Um, prior to that game, we had a good fortune against um, Belgium when um, Enzo Fifo at the inside of the post twice and it deemed out. So we had, you know, very good, you know, a bit of good luck in that, but I think if you're going to get anywhere in a cup competition, as the, as the saying goes, you need that bit of luck. And we didn't have it. You're not great all the way through. You know, it just just seemed ironic or just really bad luck that our best game throughout the tournament was against Germany and we didn't get anything out of it. Mm. Great memories, though. Great memories. You, you were at QPR at the time. I'm a QPR fan, so big honour for me to talk yeah. to you as well. A great, you held a great esteem at the club. What are your fondest memories of being at Loftus Road in the early 90s? Um, oh, that's a, I had a lot of good times at QPR. I mean, I still love the club now, to be perfectly honest. Um, people always say to me that I left and you know, a load of clubs come in for you, but I always, I always say to them that it would be an interesting one if Manchester United hadn't come in because I was playing for a team which was one of the, was one of the best in London. I enjoyed being at the club and I really don't know if I'd left. I don't know if I would have really had left if um, if Manchester United hadn't come on, come in, come in. I should say, but I would say my, I think I have to say my time there. The bit I enjoyed most maybe was was my first season. Really, was the um, introduction into the um, into then the first division because I was playing. I was a third division player at the time. And Queen's Park Rangers come in for me that obviously um, Jim Smith 
come in and and which is a bit, little bit strange. I think it's only Deli Alley, maybe in the last 20, 25 years or maybe even more, who's jumped from the side from two tiers down from the top division mm. and he's gone straight in and played. And I, I did that. I jumped straight in from the old third division straight into um, straight into the Winfight um, Rangers team and and things took off for me from there. I think I had a, a little bit of good fortune the fact that it was, it was it, I kind of it made it was made a little bit easy for me um, easy for me by um, the fact of the plastic pitch that could have made you know could have made me or broke me but it seemed to help me kind of get into it a little bit easier at home even though my first game was away at you know my local team West Ham and then my first home game was against Everton and how ironic I'm playing against Everton and I'm marking Graham Sharp I think that must have Worried a few QPR fans <laughs> at the time. There's me, there's me, kind of hanging on to being five foot seven up against six foot plus Graham Sharp. Yeah, I remember that game finally. You, you mentioned moving uh, to Manchester United. How, I mean, I don't think people know how big of a club until you go there. Was it a big culture shock for you to no disrespect to QPR because they're my team, but to go to such a big club at United? Um, it, it was. It definitely was a little bit of a shock coming from QPR. I was still kind of wrestling with the idea was I going to go was I going to go out there or not because of at that at that time not many young players from London went north they didn't mm. really go north um, so I still wasn't really sure but once I got there and I saw you know I saw the ground again but I thought it a bit different to go in there as a Queen's Park Rangers player I think my mind was made up and uh, um, it's just one of the it's just one of those things where I just knew that I couldn't. I couldn't turn it down because I've just been one of those one of those people that believes if you've got an opportunity to better yourself, you've got to go and grab it and take take the opportunity. And if, if it doesn't work out, you know in your own mind that you can actually live with the fact that you've gone and tried. And and that's the way I was really. If I'd have failed, I'd always believe there might have been an opportunity to come back to Rangers, but I wouldn't have been deemed as a person who hadn't who'd kind of virtually bottled the situation of going to play. You know, for you know, for the, one of the biggest clubs in the country, and and I had to I had to grab it, and I'm you know I'm glad I did grab it, but um, it took a club like Manchester United to really convince me that I really wanted to leave Queens Park Rangers, even though my final year wasn't the greatest at Queens Park Rangers in the in the sense of um, relationships, but it was just the club itself and the people there, and I still feel that every time I go back. Mm, I, I think they feel the same. Turning to 91-92, um, it was a season Main United went all the way with Leeds, and Leeds obviously finally won the title. What went wrong for United that season? What didn't they quite have at that point that, that when they went on to the next season that they win the title? Um, I would have just said maybe experience, and we had. Um, I mean, I was novice, and that that end, you know being up that end of the table, those kind of pressures because. Playing for Manchester United, every game is a big game. It's a cup final, so who you play against, especially away from home. Injuries caught up with me in that season as well because I wasn't prepared to be playing so many high-profile games mm. week in, week out. You know, it just did. It just—it's a completely different, different physical effort playing when you're playing for big clubs, and um, just when it mattered in that final stages, we just didn't have a, we didn't really, in theory, have a plan B. To get to get you know something different to add to what we've done all season because that league was 
was, was for us to go there and win, and we didn't achieve it. And the, the one thing that can never be said is that the team that wins the league doesn't deserve to win the league because you do. The, you know, the man who crosses a line first in a marathon deserves to win a marathon, regardless he's, he's, he was sitting in second or third towards the end. He gets he crosses that line first. He's, he's you know he's the best man, and that's what Leeds done. Leeds deserves to win that league, win that season because. They held their nerve to the end, so and we, in the end of the day, we blew it. Mm. But you did win the Rumbelows Cup that season as well at Wembley. What was that like winning? Uh, was that your first trophy, I believe? That was my first, you know, professional professional thing I'd ever won. Yes, and it, it was it was a big thing for me, and people laugh it off now. But as a player, play, you know, because the way football's changed now. But as a player, you don't you don't laugh anything off you. It's a medal. It's something you can, something you can look at. Something that people always remember about things, as you've just mentioned it there. It was my, it was my first one, and the thing about it as well, it was the first time Manchester United had ever won the League mm. Cup as well. So that adds to something as well for me as well that you know, I've gone to Manchester United. The things have changed. Are you, are you going, do you want to ask now my worst bit about my first season for Manchester United? You can tell us for sure, Paul. Yeah, my foot, my worst thing was was playing Queens Park Rangers at Old Trafford and getting beaten four one. Yeah, we remember that one fondly. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure you would have. That was that was going to come up somewhere along the line. Yeah, big game for Dennis Bailey, the hat trick. We remember that great game. Um, just going back to that cup final, something that people always talk about is is the kit, the Man United wore, quite a classic kit. Is that something that you personally take into account? The the old maple leaf purple kit. What did you think of that? Um, quite right. I gave it to um, one of my good friends at the time. It was his birthday, and I kind of, I kind of, um, I got me, I got the spare one I got for that. I got that made up for him and put it in the, put it in a glass, in a, you know, in a, in a frame for him for his birthday at the time. I think it was like his 40th birthday, and he's still got that up now in his football club, in his non-league football club. So I gave, I gave him that shirt. I, I've still got that. I've still got that myself as well. I've got that one framed as well, but that's that's locked away. That's locked away safely at, um, at a friend's place while I'm living overseas at the moment. But where most of my stuff is as well. So yes, I mean that was a yeah, it was a classic shirt. Was it one of them that you could wear now? I wouldn't have thought so. You'd look, you'd look a little bit. You'd look like a little bit of a novice team if you wore that now. <laughs> yeah, certainly of the era. Also remember the, the Newton half kit because you did a campaign, if I remember rightly, where you wore the hats and, and the tashes. You were in that campaign, weren't you? I was. I was. I was in that one. It's quite strange, really. Maybe it was quite good in certain ways. Uh, they had me in that picture, and I just wondered would there have been a black man with a black moustache in a Newton Heath kit anyway? But Very true. Yeah. With now. He's now, and that, that picture comes up. I see that that picture comes up everywhere. Every now and again, a bit of nostalgia. People always throw that picture up. So I'm definitely in that one with a with a moustache. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, somebody always asks the players. Sorry, go on, Paul. Go on. No, go on. You carry on, sir. Um, something that we always ask players of this era, who, I mean, for you, obviously playing for Manchester United, this would be a great question. I mean, who was the best player you played with and the best player you played against of that era? Of that year? Of that era, of the 90s. Of the 90s. The best player I played against would have been... If I was going to go someone British, I would have said Ian Rush. Mm. If I was going to go someone overseas, I would have said Roberto Baggio. Wow, yeah. 
And if I was, I mean, if I, someone I, I played on, see, people always ask me a question about who's, you know, the best players, and people always want to, always want for me to, um, always want me to kind of bring up great names. I mean, I bring up those shows. I remember just played against him, fortunate enough to play him against him in the third and fourth playoff. And mm. Ian Rush, I played against Ian Rush when I was at Fulham. I may have marked him from when I was at QPR. And obviously when I, you know, and then when I went to Manchester United, so Ian Rush, as everyone knows, was a, was a great goal scorer, a great yeah. player, and a, great, and a very, very great man as well. But two players always come to my mind, and both of them were very underrated, but they were both great players. And when you, when you, mention, when you mention their names, supporters of that club would, go, would always agree with me, just by what they were like as people off the pitch as well. And one of them is Steve Bruce. Mm-hmm. He was a fantastic player and um, and a man as well. And the other one was um, my old travelling companion when I first moved to Queen's Park Rangers, was Alan McDonald. Of course, legend of the club, yeah. Yeah, I used to travel in, I used to travel in with um, Alan quite regularly from when I was living up. I was living in Wokenham, so I used to meet up with Alan. Alan was travelling from Lower Early and he was... He was maybe the scruffiest. Everything about Alan was just completely wrong. But as a footballer, he was completely right. Very underrated. And he was a man who was never, ever going to leave. He loved Queen's Park Rangers. And I'm sure there was a lot of people who showed, showed interest in him. But Alan just didn't want to leave. And he was just, he was an 100% club man. And he was a pleasure to play with someone like Alan because he knew his strengths. He knew his, he knew his limitations. But you knew what you was always you knew what you was always going to get from Alan McDonald, and so um, and like very similar in certain ways with Steve Bruce. You you knew how it was, but you knew what they were like as players, and you could always rely on them. And when they weren't playing, the team struggled. Yeah, great players, man. And, and that's how it was. Yeah, that's how it was playing with Alan. When Alan, as much as we all used to take the Mickey out of Alan and so and a lot of things, Alan would always just get on with it. It always. He'd love, he just loved being around the lads. Loved, he loved what went on in the dressing room. You know, he had a great relationship when we had um, Mark Hughes and uh, Mark Hughes. Sorry, we had um, we had. I'm trying to think who it was. It was Mark Dennis, Mark Dennis and Andy Gray. Yeah. Shared a shared a room shared a room together, and it it must have been the worst nightmare of Don of Don Howe's career. Those three shared a room together. Let me put it this way. A mattress ended up ended up going out the bedroom. It was, <laughs> there, there were there were there were things going on which I wouldn't I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to come out and say, but it was just absolutely horrible. But they just made up. It was just it was just always laughing. And when you had the likes of Dave Barsley, who would never shut up as well, you had Dan, you had Danny Maddox who who just had you kept biting all the time. Worse, kept biting back all the time. Worse than a crocodile would do. And then you had Ray Wilkins, who was just so sharp with his tongue. And then you had Big, then you had Big Les, and Big Les just used to just love having a go at Danny Maddox. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was just it was just one of those places I just I just absolutely just lo- just love being there. Yeah, just great. We loved watching you guys. Yeah, it was just incredible, and I was just very fortunate in that time. Is that I played for Queens Park Rangers, but I played with some of the, some of the best players who have played in the UK. You know, when I played with Peter Reid, Nigel Spackman, Trevor Francis, Ozzy Ardiles, um, Mark Falco, great goal scorer for Tottenham and for Rangers, Colin Clark, 
Roy Wegerly, one of my heroes. Roy, oh, Roy, 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 D'Artagnan, we called him. Because <laughs> just the way he moved his feet. The man, the man was an artist. He was a swordsman with his feet. I've never, I don't think I've come across, there was a thing going on on Twitter at the moment, and I thought I wanted to say something about Roy, but Roy was, Roy was an artist. We used to do keep ball sessions with Roy, and Roy never went in the middle. He never went in the middle because he just, he just couldn't get, he just, he didn't give the ball away. His, his feet was incredible, and I was very, very fortunate to have played in that game at Leeds United when he scored that oh, yeah. goal, and I've been watching it. I've been watching that now on Twitter last week, and it's honestly... In fact, if they were to put that out there now, people would people would be going wow. Yeah, it was it was absolutely incredible. He had no intentions. He he didn't actually ever he didn't actually ever look to look to pass that ball. He was just he, he made his mind up from the touchline that he was going to run that ball in, and and that's the kind of thing Roy would do. Roy, you know, we talk about great players. All these great players, there's there's, there's something about them. There's that little bit like they all got an edge about him, and Roy, and Roy had that. Roy had an edge about him. He, you know, he made up his. You know, Roy made his mind up, and if it wasn't Roy's day, Roy'd come out and say, "It's not my day, boss. I don't think. I don't think it suits me." He done that to Don Howe. He told Don Howe. Don 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 Howe asked a question. It was a frozen pitch. Don Howe told him that he was looking for brave players. He that um, told all of us before the game that he wanted players who brave who feel comfortable playing on the ice. This was at Loftus Road. Didn't want anybody to go out there who, who, who he couldn't give 100% for the lads if the pitch didn't suit them. Tell him now. Roy put his hand up and told him. Let me just say, Don completely changed from how he was actually describing how things, how he would be. Don completely lost it. Oh, I can lost imagine. It Roy. Yeah. Lost it. But, you know, as players, you, you, know, you, you, you still want your best players on the pitch. But we knew... It wasn't. It wasn't going to be Roy. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't Roy's pitch. You know, it just wasn't anything. You know, Roy was just one of those players that. Absolutely, yeah. One of my great, great memories there, and great to talk to you, Paul. We have to wrap up there, but just tell us what are you up to now. Yeah. I know you're in Singapore, so what what are you doing these days? Mm. Well, I'm just out here. Do, I do. Um, I work at. I work at Astro in Malaysia. Do, um, I work in the studio there. Almost every weekend, I work with um, Steve McMahon and Gary Stephen, Gary Stevens, I should say, from Tottenham. Good stuff. Good, and good, good I, um, uh, yeah, and I work, um, and I'm involved with a soccer school here in Singapore, which is the biggest on the island. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Some great memories there mm. about Man United and, and my own QPR. Um, thank you for talking yeah. to us, Paul Parker. Yeah, no worries at all. Cheers. Brilliant. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks a lot. Cheers a lot. Bye. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. Great stuff from Paul Parker. Then I always remember a goal that Paul scored uh, against Luton. I think it was his only goal for QPR. We beat them 6-1. Fantastic. Not known for his goals, but great stuff from Paul Parker. Great to hear from him there. Um, something we didn't mention very quickly, um, talking about the title race, is Sheffield Wednesday. Um, because yeah. they were yeah. very much in the title. People don't remember this. Under Trevor Francis, that team that won the, the League Cup the season before beating United at Wembley, it was very much... They were, I think they were like... Six points behind um, Leeds and Man United going into the final few games of the season. Very much underrated teams came up, yeah. had some great players in like John Sheridan, John Hark, David Hurst. Do you remember much of, of seeing them as a threat, Matthew? I, I do because I remember being there that day in October when they uh, inflicted United's first, first defeat, defeat of the season, three-two. Yeah. And um, yeah, uh, Nigel Jempson scored that day, I think. 
Uh, was it Nigel Jem- Yeah, Nigel Jempson. And uh, yeah, I thought they were a great team. I mean, they finished third that season, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, um, they Always one of those teams that you didn't want to play in a run-in or you know a semi-final. I mean, they really, they really were a, a great side back then. And uh, yeah, like I say that 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 was a killer blow that that defeat at Sheffield Wednesday in October. And uh, yeah, great team. I mean, could well be on their way back. But I mean, whether they ever get back to those those dizzy heights, I don't know. But yeah, uh, Chris Chris Wood in goal. Chris Wood in yeah, goal. He joined that and, uh, season from Rangers. Yeah. Yeah, so remember what were your again? Someone who's you know been in around Yorkshire. That that's a very much golden mm. era for Sheffield Wednesday, isn't it? Very much so. Actually, you know what? In a couple of weeks, the station I'm at, we're pretty much in the shadow of uh, of Hillsborough. So it's you know it's amazing to kind of still see the ground there and and uh, the real intensity of the passion of the fans there. And they do look back again on these kind of seasons with such fond memories. And that what a run that was for Sheffield Wednesday. What a run it was, and they've changed so much again, haven't they, over mm. over the years? And you look at them again now as a, they're getting into uh, into possibly maybe going into the playoffs again this season. I don't think they're going to make it into the into the automatic promotion places. But yeah, that, this season was incredible for them. They had some really good really good runs, but then they had a couple of massive defeats, didn't they, this season? I think it was was the one against Arsenal away where they got absolutely tanked for this season. I think that might have been the following season. But was that the following yeah, season? They did lose to Leeds, though, quite heavily. This they season. lost to the Leeds on a live, yeah. a live TV game, yeah. yeah. I remember that game being on the match, yeah. That was when Leeds were really hitting the uh, hitting their form during that run in that season. And, yeah, they, they, they beat them heavily that day. I, I think it was 6-1, wasn't it? Yeah. 6-1, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was a 6-1 one, wasn't it? And, and, and to get you know, to Europe that season, it was fantastic yeah. for them. Well, they were, they were staple UEFA Cup. Yeah. Qualifiers, weren't they? You know, always third, fourth, fifth. I remember David Hurst. I remember United always being linked heavily to David Hurst. He was, well, I always thought he was a fantastic striker. Very underrated. Why he never came, I, I don't know. But he was always a deadly, one of those players you always feared. Yeah, it was. Good, good, good memories for Sheffield Wednesday and a good season under Trevor Francis. He was a player manager at the time, which you don't very much see these yes. days. Oh, it doesn't happen anymore, it does it? doesn't happen. We spoke about yeah. that a few weeks ago with a uh, with friend of the show, Joel. That, you know, player managers, very rare. doesn't happen very often anymore. Too big a job, I think. Um, but let's talk Liverpool and, and the FA Cup run. I mean, a lot of people talk about the Sunderland aspect of this of FA because they got to the final, of course, and they were a yeah. Division One team at the time. Um, go back to actually listen to our FA Cup pod. We spoke to John Byrne, who scored in every round of the Cup up to the final. It was a good interview we had with him. Um, but it was Liverpool's year. But it's fair to say, John, you had a rocky road to the final. There was a few banana skins you managed to just about avoid, wasn't there? Wasn't the most amazing run, was it? You know, to get to the FA Cup final there, and like you said, it was a, a fairly rocky, rocky trip, really. But yeah, they made it in the end, and that was that was all that counted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just going quickly going recruit. They beat Crew in the third round. Then yeah. Bristol Rovers. That was where um, Barnes came back from injury, wasn't it? Because he was out for a lot of the season, and yeah. he scored a hat trick, and then disappeared again. <laughs> yeah, Bristol Rovers then eventually in a replay after a one-one draw, and then again in the in the next round, it switched nil-nil, then a three-two win, beat Villa in the quarterfinals. But pe- people will probably mostly remember the semi-final against Portsmouth and a young Darren Anderton st- stealing the show uh, in a one-one draw at Fram Park, and then and oh, not not Fram Park, sorry, Villa Park, and then a nil-nil yeah. draw. Um, that went to penalties. And I remember it's Dean Saunders who got the winning penalty, if I remember rightly. I think it was Dean Saunders. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was. It was Dean Saunders who got that. And yeah, he was he was fantastic that season. He Came in top. from Derby. Him and Mark Wright, didn't they? Yeah, yeah Mark he, Wright. He was the record record signing. That two point nine million. I think he was yeah. the, broke the record transfer fee that season. 
Yeah, he was the record transfer. He was our record transfer as well. 2.9 million, yeah. And Mark Wright was 2.2, I think, yeah. I mean, if you bought a player like that now, who goes and scores 20 or goals a season, how much are you going to be paying for someone yeah. like that? You'll get 60, 70 yeah. million now, aren't you? So. Yeah, Dean Saunders, 60, 70 million quid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and at, the time, at the time, he wasn't seen as such a, a you know a huge, big signing, but he was, he was a deadly, deadly striker in his time, wasn't he? He really was, yeah. He, he put the goals away. And he, you know, he started the season firing. He, he you know, scored in that first game. And he was, he was flying ever since. So you say he was a deadly striker. He was very... I guess he was one of those who probably wasn't, again, your household name until he became the, you know, the biggest signing in the country. Mm. Do you yeah. think that, that season for Liverpool, obviously, Graham soon is his first full season. He also was the season he suffered the, the heart transplant that he had midway mm. through the campaign. Did the FA Cup win kind of paper over the, as you mentioned, transitional cracks, I suppose? Because this really was a Liverpool team that was coming to an end in certain areas and really the new youngsters were coming through, like Steve McManaman made his debut that season, Robbie Fowler would go on a couple of seasons afterwards as well. It was really a transitional period, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. You look at the players that he got rid of that season. It was kind of, like you said, taking out the old guard and bringing in the in the new players. And, you know, the likes of uh, you know Steve McMahon, of course, who went halfway through his season to City as well. Barry Venson went to Newcastle halfway through his season. And, you know, he started to really change the side, like Peter Beardsley, Speedy, Gillespie, all disappearing. Steve Staunton came back, didn't he, you know, a little while ago. And then started to make these changes, bringing in the likes of Mark Wright, bringing in your Dean Saunders, and, and bringing up Steve McManaman, and of course Jamie Redknapp Jamie making Redknapp, his debut yeah. this season, yeah, which uh, I well, think, again, he was a bit under the radar, and he, he, he turned up. He was the most expensive teenager, wasn't he? Mm. One other player you forgot to mention there who made his debut, actually, in this season at Old Trafford, Rob Jones. Rob Jones, yeah. yeah. Rob Jones, I remember him making his debut this season at Old Trafford in a nil-nil draw, live on the match again. And he was seen... A good relationship with crew because we've signed so many players from them and they were what fourth division at the time mm. weren't they they were yeah. they were in the bottom of it and rob jones 300 grand or yeah, he was seen as a great i mean he poten- oh. apparently he was a fantastic potential but obviously uh suffered badly with injury and, yeah he made his well he made his england debut that year as well because i was there yeah, it was yeah, my yeah. first ever live football game against france him and alan Sierra made their debut in the february of that season I, I think i mentioned it on the last episode so yeah how quickly he progressed in that liverpool team and, and then he was meant to challenge Gary Neville probably eventually at yeah. England right back, but obviously injury protected that. But going to the final itself, John, I mean, mm. what, do you, what are your memories of it? was a 2 0 pretty comfortable win in the end over plucky Sunderland. Um, yeah. Michael Thomas and Ian Rush getting the goals. But it, well, yeah, it was, it, it was kind of a comfortable day for, for Liverpool, wasn't it? It was really. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't probably the greatest of finals that you're ever going to see. It wasn't, you know, a massive comeback or it wasn't. Yeah, any exciting final. It wasn't a massive spanking, was it, for Sunderland? It was a good 2 0 win. And it, like you say, it was nice to kind of get that little paper over the cracks in a way, but maybe that kind of hid a lot of the deficiencies that we were having. Fantastic play from Steve McManaman. That, that boy was destined to be a star, I think, you know, and he did some great work for that very first goal after. Uh, do you remember that, that miss from Thomas as well? Yeah. Early doors. That absolute. This or a mess. It was worse than Lallana's, even. Um, <laughs> Keep it nineties. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he, uh, he, he did really well in that game. And Matt Manaman was, you know, like I say, he was looking to be an absolute star. And and we we kind of dominated, really, didn't we? And and it, like I say, it wasn't a classic. But I remember watching it on telly with my dad. Uh, I think that was the nicest thing. Because always nineties football always brings back good memories of sitting at home and watching big games with my dad. Uh, yeah, well, that, I'm the same actually. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, this is definitely one. It's a shame that we, you know, miss players like John Barnes. We're doing great to have him in that side, but 
you can't help injuries and things like that, can you? It's uh, it, it was great to to get there, and, and yeah, Sunderland they weren't the great. I think the expression you're looking for, the polite expression there, John, is it wasn't a great final for the neutrals. It was. <laughs> it really yeah, wasn't. It, was, no. it, was, it was. It was a bit of a routine game, really. Yeah. That just happened to be an FA Cup final. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, Matthew. I think Sunderland had reached their kind. Of, their final was the semis, wasn't it? They getting there yeah. was kind of the achievement for them. So as you say, not not one for the neutrals, and especially not for a United fan either, eh? No, well, I was still devastated from what had happened the week before, so that that was just salt in the wound, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> the, the cap on a, on a miserable season for myself personally, but but a great season for the neutral. Yeah, it was. Let's just sort of tidy up what else happened that season. Um, relegated, as we mentioned already, was West Ham, Luton and Notts County, so they'd miss out on the first season of the Premier League the following campaign. Um, we'll, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about promotion, because Middlesbrough won the league, shout out to Joel, a friend of the show. Oh, sorry, they came second, Ipswich won the league. But it's the team that won the playoffs that a lot of hurrah was surrounded by. Blackburn Rovers, big money Blackburn, under Kenny Dalglish. I'll go to you first, John, of course, because being the Kenny Dalglish link to Liverpool, good to see him back. Surprised Blackburn, but not surprised that he got him over the line? Yeah, not surprised he got him over the line. I think, you know, Kenny's managerial skills could have done that with that team. And, yeah, I think he, after you know, what happened when he left Liverpool, uh, his head was down and he wanted to rebuild his, his career a little bit. It was great to go to Blackburn and do this. And, and yeah, it was great to see him back in, in, in the big time, really. And, you know, as you said, big money Blackburn. And, and there they are, in, back into the, uh, into the big time after getting through that playoffs. It was amazing for him. What, Matthew, do you remember this Blackburn team? I mean, they made a lot of big signings that season. Colin Hendry, Mike Newell, Duncan yeah. Shearer. There's, there's a name from the 90s. Old Duncan Shearer, well, who's top scorer in, in that league, along with David Speedy. But they earned their way to the playoffs, didn't they? They did. I mean, everyone obviously <clears throat> remembers them that the, the year they after that, and then they started spending the big money. But the, yeah, they did. They did sign a lot of big names that year. But do you, do you remember that they weren't doing too well, and then Dalglish came in and, and sort of turned their fortunes around, and then it looked like they were going to go up. And then I think they lost six in a row or something towards the end of that season, and, and sort of meant that they got into the playoffs instead of going up automatically. But um, still, a, still a fantastic achievement. And then obviously on the back of that became. The Blackburn that we'll obviously, or you'll obviously go on and discuss in future podcasts, but uh, a fantastic story, really, seeing as what they would come from and then what they what they went on to become. Yeah, of course, and not the only ex Liverpool uh, player to become a manager that season as well. Well, yeah. again, a manager in the same division. Ozzy Ardiles was having a terrible old time at Newcastle. They were threatened to relegation yeah. and going down to the second division as it was then. Um, well, no, third division, sorry. So, and until Kevin Keegan, the soon-to-be Messiah, joined, turned their fortune around and stayed in the relegation. This really was. We talk about Blackburn starting. Oh, this, yeah. This again, incredible. It was, it was the beginning of the what was an amazing run in the nineties, as we'll talk in future podcasts. But yeah, Matthew, do you remember Keegan coming back? I do. I do. Like you say, I remember around about Christmas time, Newcastle. I think they were third bottom, so maybe in the relegation zone, and uh, everyone was writing them off. The gates were down badly. I mean, obviously they always had a fantastic support there, but I think. They were, their gates were sort of fifteen, sixteen thousand, and then Keegan came in with I think it was Terry McDermott, his number two, and just completely, completely changed the feel of the club, and uh, obviously got a great, great run of results and kept them up. I mean, they didn't win anything or they didn't get promoted, but in a way, it was almost like they'd won a trophy by staying up, and and just the buzz that Keegan created around Newcastle that season. I think they finished fourth bottom, did they fifth bottom, just outside the relegation yeah, zone, and then nice. obviously then from that point on kicked on and again like Blackburn never really looked back yeah. through, through the 90s any, certainly mm. 
Yeah, John, it's something I've never actually thought of, and it just occurred to me. Yeah. At that time, when Keegan saved Newcastle and then obviously went on, did you ever see him as a future Liverpool manager? I met him, actually, not not too long after he uh, he went to Newcastle, and he, he's such a lovely man, and I thought he would come back. I actually thought he would come back, but, yeah, I, I don't think he was ever really linked. I don't mm. think he was one of those ones that... I, I, I would have always loved him. I know it happened eventually, but I would have always loved for Kenny to have come back at that period. Yeah, yeah. I really I really would have wanted to have Kenny come back. If he if he was going to leave Blackburn after yeah, doing what he did, as you're going to talk about in the next pod, but I would have loved to have seen him back at Anfield. Kevin Keegan, he played some great football with Newcastle, as we saw, but I don't think, I don't think he would have been the fit. I don't mm. think he ever would have been the fit for Liverpool. Been an interesting one, that. Um, let's mm. finish tidying up then. Um, league-wise, Gary Lineker was the football writers' player of the year, and we'll talk just we'll touch on him again in a second about his move uh, to Grand Passe. Uh, Gary Pallister was the the winner of the PFA. Well, was a bit of, a, of all the players to pick, Matthew of your main United team yeah. and even the Leeds team, that was a bit of a surprise choice, wasn't it, Gary Pallister? It was. It was. Uh, and and to be honest, it wasn't until I looked back that I remembered that. I mean, thinking about it now, the the, the people that could have could have received that award. I mean, Pallister was a a sound defender. I, I would say that back then he probably wasn't even, you know, he wasn't his peak. He wasn't yeah. as good as he was in '93, '94, '95 when he was an absolute rock. I mean, he was he was still a, almost a work in progress back then. So that really was a a surprise thing as the players that could have taken taken that that award. I mean, you had great players like Gary Speed, McAllister, Strachan, obviously all at Leeds, and yeah, yeah, strange strange decision. Well, yeah. But it's down to the players, sometimes that happens, yeah. isn't it? Uh, Giggs He's won, obviously a popular guy. Yeah, very, Ryan Giggs won the Young Player of the Year, of course, um, for the yeah. second season running. And Ian Wright was top scorer in the league as he joined uh, Arsenal from Palace earlier that season, um, although Arsenal's season kind of petted out for most of that second half of the campaign. Just going back to Lineker quickly, John, he, this is the mm. season, this was his last season in the Football League and in the last season um, for England as well. We'll touch on England in just a second. But he went to, obviously went on, went on to play in Japan for Grand Bersay, not for very long, ouch, Mato, as I always say. But back then, I mean, it's a bizarre move now to see players to go to China, but back then, yeah. r- random. Yeah, how weird was this? I mean, it was, it was just out of the blue and you know it's one of those things that you you look at now like you mentioned the china thing you go oh okay um why <laughs> yeah you still sort of sit there and think why did he do that yeah and obviously there's the money and, and that kind of side and and maybe he wanted to maybe he wanted to go there and finish his career in that way but it was so weird it who would have thought very... you go go to japan i mean obviously venga came out of japan didn't he but why? Yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> I never got it. I never understood why you did it. No. Well, what was your take on it, Matthew? Yeah, well, like John said, I, th- I think it was a, a movement at the time. I mean, I actually wrote an article on this uh, a while ago for Football Whispers, but and looking into it, it Japan had this vision, maybe like China has now, that they wanted to make football or soccer or whatever it was called um, their number one sport. I mean, it wasn't at the time. I think baseball was. They'd won a couple of Olympic medals in football, and, and the, the Japanese FA wanted to. I think they have this hundred-year plan that they they said they're going within a hundred years they're going to win the World Cup, and they just they just went all out to to make Japanese football the the sports to get everyone talking about. And obviously they saw the signing of someone like Lineker, who was was England's top scorer. I mean, remember this season he'd only just missed out on beating uh, the goals record for England, so he was still a, a fantastic yeah, player. So they saw him. Yeah. Yeah, they saw him as maybe this sort of like marquee signing, um, and then obviously in, in 
a couple of years later, I think they signed Zico, didn't they? Zico went there and uh, Stoichkov went there. So they, I think they did try and do what China are doing now. And, and people criticise what China are doing now, but I mean, Japan did it back then and it, you could argue it worked. I mean, they've obviously made the World Cup semi-finals of, you know, a few years back now, but I mean, they, they, it did revolutionise football in the country. So, you know, it was, England's loss was Japan's gain, I suppose. But mm. I, I think Lineker could have easily gone to a different club in in England, but obviously just saw the pound signs, maybe. But maybe, give him his credit, maybe he saw it as a, an option, an opportunity to to uh, spread the word in Japan. Yeah. I mean, if it, if he had done amazing things there, and Japanese football had come on leaps and bounds. Yeah, he would have been a legend, wouldn't he? Even more than he is right now, he would have been a legend in Japan for doing it, that and fairness, putting them on the map. In fairness, though, it has. I mean, if you think now, I mean, Japanese players, we, we think nothing of, of Japanese players in the Bundesliga and, uh, you know, Premier League. I know there's not a lot of Japanese players, but, it, there, you know, there have been some prominent players now and that probably wouldn't have, you know, you go back to when Lineker went to play there. I mean, you just wouldn't have seen any Japanese players playing in Europe and certainly in World Cups. I mean, they've, you know, I think... Obviously, it's it's only been 25 years, let's not forget. So that's only a quarter of the way through their, their 100-year plan. So <laughs> yeah. cre- credit <laughs> to them for it, really. So, yeah. look, you know, that's looking at the positive, I suppose. But, uh, there was a lot of corporate stuff future. as well, wasn't there? Sorry to jump in there. There's a lot of corporate stuff to come with this with the sponsors, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, obviously there was, and, and that you could say exactly the same thing for China, and people obviously turn their nose up at it and a bit suspicious of it. But it, it wasn't until I looked back at doing this article and, and I thought, well, actually... You could argue that it worked, you know. And if if signing Lineker and paying him what he, whatever he was on, then I think it was by today's standards, it was I think it was a million pounds a year or something. So it didn't seem it doesn't seem a lot now, but I, I suppose it captured the imagination. So I guess they would say it was a price worth paying. Yeah, sadly for Lineker, it didn't last long. Obviously, the toe injury, he didn't really play a lot of yeah. games with Grand Perse. But like you say, maybe it was just that door that needed opening for Japanese. I think football. it was. Yeah, I think he went there as a marquee signing. I don't think he probably thought he was going to play more than two or three seasons anyway. But yeah, he did what he needed to do, I suppose. He did, and he did what he needed to do as well to get England to qualify for Euro 92, which happened at the end of that tournament. Uh, his goal in the 1-1 draw with Poland in October. I remember celebrating that quite wildly in my living room. Yeah. Going from a corner, if I think it was, he sort of twisted and turned uh, in the box and, and, and scored the in a 1-1 draw, which was enough to get them over the line. We did do a Euro 92 pod um, last season. Go back and have a listen to that. It's, it's, it's a great listen, because I always call it the, the tournament that people don't really remember, because nothing really happened apart from... Lineker's finishing and the, the Sweden Brolin Darling. But what, just briefly, what are your guys' memories uh, of Euro 92? Coming to you, John, first. It was, that was probably one of the, the, the first sort of major tournaments that, you know, I kind of got together with my mates and watched. I think, you know, instead of just being with the family, you know, you had all your mates around and you got the drinks and the chips and the pizza and all that kind of stuff. And you sat and watched. That was quite, that was quite a cool little memory for me. I mean, obviously, yeah, I think about the Liverpool <laughs> yeah, side of it and Rob Jones not being able to, yeah, to, to, to make it there he had his what was it shin splints or something I like that yeah, 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 sometimes it was. it was a leg injury at least anyway um, and, and yeah obviously Graham Taylor being being the manager and uh, yeah it's, it's so sad but you know he's no longer with us now is he it's, uh, that's a, a real shame it was yeah it was, it was an interesting so like I say it was one where kind of nothing happened yeah other than Denmark and, swooping in at, yeah. the, at the last minute <laughs> and that was it yeah and it's it kind of nothing I'm like yeah, as, as you mentioned then, just watching the England games, I always remember the atmosphere really, you know, w- with my mates and, and watching Lineker, just who was still incredible, wasn't he, to watch him. He's just such a such a great player. Such a great player. And his finishing, I just said, was just great. I think, again, might have been the start of something. You see some of the players coming in there, like the Shearer, 
uh, who was turning up, and that was possibly a little introduction into his international future. And yeah, it was it was one of those tournaments that, that, that there's bits of it that don't massively stick in the in yeah. the memory because Especially it was England, kind man. of. Yeah, because it was kind of dull. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was a, a much sort of diluted tournament as we as we're used to now. I think you know there was only sort of eight teams involved, much as it was back then. Mm. Um, and England, they played France, and and then they played Denmark. And they lost to Sweden. Um, and that famous yeah. commentary, the Brolin, Darlene, Brolin, before Denmark obviously went on to win the the tournament itself. Um, again, like Liverpool, Matthew, they were England were very much transitional. The, you know the side at 90 was becoming to an end the side that we'll see eventually at 96 was very much in the beginnings and it didn't work out for Graham Taylor and it didn't work out for England that summer did it no it certainly didn't and from an England point of view it was a very forgettable tournament I mean it seems strange saying it was a forgettable tournament since it's probably one of the greatest shocks ever when the Denmark won it and one of the greatest fairy tales but from an England point of view it really was poor I do feel slightly sorry for Taylor in a way I mean he was taking over an England team that was on the decline. I mean, players like Robson and Butcher and those fantastic players that have been there for all those years were <clears throat> coming to an end. And he, he had he only had what he had in front of him. You know, and he, he obviously brought in players like uh, John Salako and... Um, Carl Tad. C- yes, Carlton Palmer. And I mean, it's easy to mock now, but I mean, these were, they were top fly yeah. players at the time. So he, he really only had who he had to work, uh, work with. Jeff Thomas as well, another one. But... It wasn't. It wasn't a great era for for English football, and, and that tournament particularly. I think you would probably agree. The only thing, the only positive to come out of that tournament was England's away kit, the blue kit with the uh, the huge line yeah, going down favorite, the side. My, I think. Yeah. My favourite kit of all time. That is. My yeah, favorite. I think that's the only real positive. I mean, in terms of memorable moments, I mean, there was a Stuart Pearce getting a headbutt from Basil Bolly or an elbow, or and and that was about it. But. Um, yeah, I just think it's a bit sad that Graham Taylor will always be remembered for that. I mean, I suppose, I suppose he's he's the manager, so he has to take the, the can. But um, it, it was a it was a poor few years, really. Between then and I suppose ninety five, ninety six, it it didn't get much better, really, did it? No, it was a, it was a dark day for England. But let's wrap up the show with just any final thoughts from the season. Um, John, coming to you first. Anything else we have? I mean, you haven't mentioned Barcelona. They beat Sampdoria one nil at Wembley to win their first European Cup. Um, anything else from ninety one, ninety two you wanted to quickly mention? So I think yeah, the emergence of uh, going off a li- on a Liverpool tangent, the emergence of some of the players that we had coming through then, and again the likes of Steve McManaman who went on to do such great things with the club before he decided to to go, and and Jamie Redknapp seen him, and and you know still being able to watch Ian Rush, I always enjoyed watching Ian mm. Rush play because he was a ridiculously unbelievable finisher. Um, again, that season I think it was a bit of a disappointing one, even though I won the FA Cup. It was just one of those ones where I thought should have pushed for that title but didn't, and that you know I think I've been saying that ever since, <laughs> yeah, with Liverpool. But yeah, they're, they're the defining moments for me. I said the Euros were not very exciting, but I always enjoyed you know watching players that you don't get to see very yeah. often and you hear about it and you look at some of the players who were in that France side and you look at the players who were playing for Barcelona at the time. I enjoyed being able to see those because we didn't have the access to see it back in the day. Mm. And Matthew, for you, anything else we haven't mentioned in, in 91-92 um, you wanted to give a nod to? Well, I think Rexton beating Arsenal in the Cup, that was uh, uh, one of the, the big shocks that year. Um, but for me personally, I mean, I don't really want to harp on about the uh, United angle on this season. I mean, for me, I think this season was almost the last season of old-fashioned football, if you, if you like, for a, a certain generation. I mean, mm. obviously after this year, the Premier League came in and the Sky 
deal took over. And I just think after the season, nothing really seemed the same again. I mean, you look at footage from the 91-92 season and it, it still looks like proper old-fashioned football. You know, muddy pitches, you still had the cop, Terrace old form, yeah, yeah. you still had the Stretford end, you still had the North Bank. And I just think you could argue for better for, or for worse. I'm sure people argue both. I know sort of how I feel, but it just seemed as soon as this season finished and then the Sky and the Premier League started, it just seemed everything changed. It did change. Um, but, but this season, it seems funny. You look back and it, it just looks like, you know, the players look like the sort of players that you could still see down the pub. Um, you know, the, the, the pitches were muddy, the, there was the terracing. It, it just seemed to me like it was the, like a line in the, in the sand moment, really, for, for football. Uh, and obviously what happened for the rest of the decade. It was, you mentioned yeah. a lot of transitional periods. This was a transitional period for the game, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Got it. This period of football into what Sky had. Yeah. And the change was, was epic, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. It almost happened overnight as well. I mean, obviously the yeah. first season of the pr- Premier League, it, it didn't, not a lot changed. But just if you just look back at some of these games and you look at it, you think, yeah, that just looks... I mean, obviously it was a long time ago, it was 25 years ago, but it just looks so different and it just looks like football used to be compared to now. Maybe that's just me being, you know, reminiscing. It it was different. It was very different. And the change when Sky came in, they really kind of ramped it up and did something different with it and it became a, a different beast. In Indeed. a way. And we'll talk very much about that in the next, in the pod. But you mentioned, I've got Wrexham on my list there, Matthew. Thank you for reminding me. That was obviously one of the biggest um, giant killings yeah. in FA Cup history. They beat champions Arsenal in the third round. Mickey Thomas yeah. with that great free yeah. kick. So it, it almost seems that was the last great FA Cup shock as well, doesn't it? Yeah, Mickey Thomas. So, yeah. I mean, there's been some, you know, you had the, the runs this season, which were, you know, pretty remarkable in terms of where they are in the leagues but of that era especially I think you know that was a massive massive shot Wrexham and, and Arsenal who were the champions at the time as well and that great free kick yeah. wearing a brilliant banana skin kit as well let's not forget the yeah the bruised banana, banana yeah. classic kit so yeah any Wrexham fans listening yeah, there's your mention because you fully well deserved it but before we go just where can we find you guys on the Twitter John where can people get in contact with you I'm at John Ishwood. You'll find me straight there. Easy. And Matthew? Yeah, at Matthew J. Christ on Twitter. Yeah, writing mostly about old football, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Which we love, yeah. Do check out Matthew's articles. I've retweeted quite, quite a few of them, so they're always good looking back. So thank you very much, guys. Thank you for that look back at 1991-92. Thank you guys for listening. hope you enjoyed it. Please tell us if we've missed something on Twitter, as I always say. Hopefully we haven't. You can get in contact at AK90s. I'm Ash Rose, get me at Ash Rose UK, and until next time when a whole new ball game happens in 92-93, keep it 90s.